Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we will stop in Houston to speak with Ben DeBose of Locked On Rockets about the Rockets' disappointing Game 3 performance in the Western Conference Finals. We'll go to Phoenix to chat with Evan Sidery of Locked On Suns about the Suns winning that number one pick in the NBA draft lottery and where they're leaning between Luka Doncic and DeAndre Ayton. And lastly, we'll go to Milwaukee to speak with Eric Name of Locked On Bucks after Milwaukee selected Mike Budenholzer to be their new head coach. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, we're back with another Monday edition of the Locked On NBA podcast. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. And you can find me as always on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball. Lots happening in the NBA conference finals in full swing, coach hirings, draft stuff, lots of stuff going down. So we've got a lot to talk about. So let's get to it. We head now to a somber Houston and the host of the Locked On Rockets podcast. That is Ben DuBose, fresh off a, uh, I think disappointing would be the kindest way of putting it, Game 3 loss against the Golden State Warriors. After Game 2, Ben, everything was looking a little bit rosy, but that was a smackdown of epic proportions in Game 3 from the Warriors over the Rockets. Yeah, absolutely. I think the old adage, for all there's, is positive to say about the Rockets. They've been great on the road in this postseason against Minnesota and Utah. At the same time, the Warriors are a different beast, and the old adage in NBA circles is role players play better at home. And what went right for the Rockets in Game 2, the Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker, Trevor Ariza trifecta, it didn't work for the Rockets in Game 3 at Oracle Arena, which is probably, based on NBA history, a fair thing to suspect. Ultimately, the Rockets needed more help from Chris Paul and James Harden, and the reality is that neither one of those guys could get it going. I think the final numbers actually kind of made them look better than they actually were in the first half of the game, and it was truly there for the taking. Rockets actually were just down 11, but it was a missed opportunity because Steph Curry did not play well in the first half, turned out big time in the second, but the Rockets were still down 11 at the break. Chris Paul and James Harden just 4-15 between them. With Chris Paul in particular, we saw the Achilles, the foot, the ankle, whatever it is, wrapped after game two. You wonder about if that might be a factor. But regardless of the reason, what it may be, the bottom line is the Rockets role players, it's not fair to expect them on the road to be as good as they were in game two when Gordon was six of nine from three, Tucker and Ariza were eight of nine, seven of nine respectively. On the road, an environment like Golden State, you need your stars to be great. And for whatever reason, James Harden and Chris Paul simply were not. It's also hard to win when you shoot under 40% from the field and your opponent goes at 52%. When you shoot 32% from three and your opponent goes at 41%. Yeah. When you have 19 turnovers and your opponent has eight. Like Those things are really, really hard to overcome. And as you mentioned, the, the first half, the Warriors were in control, but it wasn't anywhere near what happened in the second half there as the Warriors really put their foot down. But what we've seen, uh, another thing which I think could be 
I don't know if it's a key factor, but it is important, is the fact that Luke Marmute just is way off. His shoulder is clearly not working for him. He can't finish you know, in close shots. He can't dunk. His defense was uh, not at a good, good level in this game. I think it was a minus 24 in his, uh, in his 15 minutes, something uh, really poor like that. Um, do you think D'Antoni needs to start looking at, as we saw a little bit in this great game, a little bit more Gerald Green or go to other options? Maybe it's Joe Johnson just because of how much uh, Marmute is struggling out there at the moment? You have to consider it, but ultimately it's very difficult. I think in Game 2 they got away with it because they knew there were three straight off days after Game 2 so they could extend the rotation. From here on out, it's every other day. So I think in theory they should, but it's not like they can just play Gerald Green more because, well, that's really just a seven-man rotation. At this point in the playoffs, that's probably not enough. And Joe Johnson... They did try him in the fourth quarter. I guess he, you know, had four points, two or three shooting, uh, but somehow he was still a minus 19 in his eight minutes, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, not as bad as Luke, who in 15 minutes was a minus 28, which is just a crazy bad plus by his figure. Clearly, he's not himself, but at the same time, for the Rockets from here on out, it's just sort of a minutes thing. They need someone to eat minutes. Maybe, ultimately, if Joe Johnson is making shots, he's an upgrade over Luke Bamute, who, despite his defense, seems to give you nothing offensively. You can make that argument, but ultimately, I think either way, those are net negative minutes. And if you're the Rockets, you're in a tough spot because, you know, you mentioned Gerald Green. I don't know that you can really stretch minutes that much more for your key guys. I mean, I guess maybe Gerald, you could play 30 minutes, but he's certainly a big defensive liability in his own right. So Houston's in a tough spot because now with this being in every other game series, they've got to eat minutes. And especially at the pace at which the Warriors play tonight, it's not like you can just play James. And Chris Paul, especially with Chris Paul, what I'm guessing is kind of a gimpy Achilles and say play 42 minutes a night. So there are little tweaks you can make, but ultimately it's just bad timing for Mike D'Antoni. They need Luke Bamute to eat at least 20 or 25 minutes, even if he's not maybe in peak performance, at the very least eat the minutes. And his inability to do that now, it, it, you're right, it's costing him. For someone who who maybe didn't watch the game and, and wakes up and, and sees this box score, they'll look at the score and go, "Gee, that's 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 obviously a, a smashing." But they also look at the fact that Clint Capella played only twenty two minutes. What's the major reason behind the limited play here of Capella, especially considering how awesome he has been throughout the playoffs? But twenty two minutes is obviously a lot less than the other starters on this team. You're right, and that actually touched right into one of my uh, three points on my post game locked on Rockets show. I think maybe the fool's goal for the Rockets was that tuck wagon lineup in game two, which with P.J. Tucker at the center spot, the three guards and Chris Paul, James Harden, Eric Gordon, and Trevor Ariza at the four, it was tremendous for them in game two. That said, that ties back into what we said earlier, which is that role players tend to play better at home. If you kind of, when you play that lineup against the Warriors, you're conceding to their style. And at Oracle Arena, if you play that small ball style with the Hamptons 5, it was a matter of time before Steph Curry eventually made some shots. I'll buy that the MCL is affecting him defensively in this series. I don't think that the MCL is what made him shoot 2 of 13 from behind the arc in games 1 and 2. I think a lot of that is just sheer randomness. He got going a ridiculous third quarter, 18 points, 7 of 7 from the field, and it felt like the Rockets were trying to recapture the magic of Game 2, when in reality, the roadmap to winning at Oakland, the Warriors are so good, having won two of the last three titles, the Western Conference, all three of the last three seasons, you probably need to make them uncomfortable. Do something stylistically different, which means using Capella 13 
Nate a little bit more, hope that he gets a lot of offensive rebounds, controls the area around the rim. I thought Mike D'Antoni, especially when Curry made some shots in the second half, he erred on the side of what went right in game two. But ultimately, at their gym, with Steph Curry getting going, I just don't think you can beat the Warriors playing into their hands with that small ball style. Ultimately, you have to do something to make them a little more uncomfortable to muck it up a little bit. And Clint Capella is probably your best opportunity to do that. Well, after game one, people were riding the Rockets obituary. They got beaten fairly comfortably in that game. And then they came out and they turned the tables and they really did give it to the Warriors in game two. Now, doing it in Oakland is a little bit of a different story, but it's not that Rockets fans should be entirely without hope. They've won in Golden State this season already. And they do have that pattern of being able to turn it back around, especially if the Warriors just get, you know, 5% complacent. There is an opportunity here for Houston in game four. It's going to be pivotal, but there is an opportunity for them to, to get this. And they, they desperately need obviously to get this game so that they can now square the series up what's one thing that you would think that needs to happen for them to get back into consideration to win that game for as simple as it sounds i think they've got to get chris paul back uh whether it be his health whether it be randomness whether it be a slump they've got to get him going from the outset tonight he was 5 of 16 and he actually started off 2 of 11 and that comes off the heels of a game two in which he did have his moments breaking down Steph Curry off the dribble, but by and large, he was below 50%. He did not play most of the fourth quarter with a giant wrap on his Achilles. The Rockets are just not top-heavy enough, especially in Oakland, where we know they have to win one at some point, be it game four or game six, to win this series. As great as James Harden can be, and he was not in game three, but even if he's better, They've got to have more from the supporting cast, and I don't necessarily think that it's going to be the Trevor Reza, P.J. Tucker tier that wins the game in Oakland. Maybe they make a big shot, but they don't win the game. You've got to have Chris Paul doing the heavy lifting. We saw him do it in Game 5 against the Jazz, but for whatever reason, a slump, the injury, whatever it could be, this has not been his series, and he did finish. I mean, if there's a tiny silver lining for the Rockets, he made three of his last five shots. He seemed to get a little bit more in rhythm. But I think the key is to get Chris more comfortable early in Game 4. Because to win a game in that gym, I think you've got to lean on your stars. And to me, for this series as a whole, Chris is the guy that, for whatever reason, just has not been there consistently enough. Well, I guess everyone who's hoping for a competitive conference finals hopes that the Rockets gets Game 4 here. Everyone can check out Locked on Rockets and Ben's Rocket-centric thoughts over there on their podcast. Make sure you're subscribing to that. Ben, thanks for jumping on Locked on NBA and chatting after a, a disappointing performance. Sure thing. Thanks, Ash. It's time now to bring in the host of the Locked On Suns podcast, Evan Sidery. The Suns, um, they uh, they pulled off what I guess most Suns fans were hoping for this season when it became apparent that they weren't very good in that they got the number one pick in the NBA draft lottery last week. Evan, um, is it a sense of relief that the Suns uh, ended up with that number one pick? 100%. Yeah, it was actually a crazy story. My first, The first home game of the season when the Suns actually lost by 48 points to the Trailblazers, there was actually a Marvin Bagley the third channel that broke out in the first game of the, the first season. First game of the season, so that tells you all you need about what Suns fans are thinking about the entire season. So when they got that first pick, now I was actually there for the lottery for the for the Suns, and 
it was the, the roar inside the arena for the draft player was incredible. It, it sounded literally like they won the NBA championship, Josh. What it feels like is the Suns have been building with these young players, their lottery picks at Booker, Chris, Bender, Josh Jackson, these sort of guys. And this is, you know, it appears coming from Suns media, Suns fans, Suns players themselves, that this is the, the last, poten- potentially, the last piece that they need to add to that group to start their, their move forward. And potentially this could be the last season we see of them tanking as they try to push forward. Is that the impression that you're getting around the team? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I actually talked to Igor Kokoshkov, Ryan McDonough, and James Jones earlier this week on Monday, and they said that this is about accelerating the rebuild pretty fast. They want to get this final piece in the draft. Obviously, there was reports came out about Carnathan Towns, and we don't know if that's true or not, and we'll have to see how that falls over the summer. But Luka Doncic or DeAndre and seems to be one of those two guys will be the final piece of the puzzle alongside Josh Jackson and Devin Booker. And from there, they really want to accelerate the rebuild by getting a lot of veterans in the roster via trade or free agency. So really probably outside of those main three core pieces, I would expect a lot of moving and shaking this summer for the Phoenix Suns. Maybe even, probably, probably even more than half the roster can be overturned, in my opinion. Yeah, look, there's there's tons of options on this on this uh, roster. We've got all these young pieces in place, but let's talk about this number one pick now, Evan. I have uh, I don't know why I do it to myself, but I have been frequenting things like the Suns subreddit and, and reading comments regarding the back and forth between Luka Doncic and DeAndre Ayton. And to be honest, it gets a little bit heated, and it can be quite toxic in terms of those opinions. In terms of you from a, a media perspective and what you're talking about on Locked on Suns, are you seeing these you know, back and forwards? This is the Aiton camp, this is the Doncic camp, when in reality, Suns fans should just be happy that they're in line to get the you know, whoever they choose, the best player in that draft. Yeah, I've spoken on this before on Locked on Suns. I actually said from a fan perspective, they probably prefer the second overall pick so they can avoid this entire fiasco. It seems like there's a Team Luka camp and a Team Aiton camp that's kind of turned into a civil war since Tuesday night, and that's not really been fun from a media perspective, but from my opinion, from my vantage point, seeing a lot of comments and a lot, like you mentioned, I actually look at the red, subreddit as well. And from the pro Aiden point of view, it just seems like since he's from the University of Arizona, that kind of really infiltrates a lot of hometown bias toward Aiden's view. And I actually watched Luka Doncic's game today against Fenerbahce in the championship game for EuroLeague, and he was very impressive. And you know, the stats wouldn't say it was a big time game like Aiden does in the Pac-12 title game, but. It just seems like the Euro bias alongside that and the U of A bias really just infiltrated to a point where the arguments really aren't that, they're not really arguments, they're almost just screen matches where there's really no valid points being made at all. But like you mentioned, Josh, I think either Doncic or Aiden, I think they're in a really good win-win scenario in my opinion. There's no chance that it's anyone apart from those two. It feels like it's consensus. I see people throwing out some wild theories of maybe, oh, they should take Trey Young at pick one or they should pick Marvin Bagley, but that doesn't seem any any we're close to being realistic at this point, does it? Oh, no. They're, McDonough mentioned in Chicago, I think on Wednesday or Thursday, that they were going to talk to guys like Muhammad Bamba, Martin Bagley III, not, not even Jaron Jackson. But I also mentioned they met with Trey Young, Michael Porter Jr. Those guys are all going to be just doing their due diligence first in the one pick, but it's really, from everything I've heard from the Suns and everything around the organization, it's definitely down to Doncic and Aiden. I think it's honestly like, some people in the front office prefer Doncic. Some people in the front office actually prefer DeAndre Aiden. So it's actually going to be a really interesting final really month or so before the NBA draft for the Phoenix Suns. You talked about Doncic today in the EuroLeague final. He won the EuroLeague MVP, the youngest player to ever win that. I think youngest by three years. The uh, previous youngest winner was uh, Milos Teodosic, who was 22. Doncic has just turned 19. Uh, Real Madrid won the EuroLeague championship. He was the finals MVP there. He's done pretty much anything that needed to be done to show he is an elite prospect. He is the best European prospect, really, in terms of resume that we've ever seen coming across to the NBA. Now, there's all these 
talk about now he hasn't made his decision about whether he's actually going to come to the NBA. It feels a little bit like posturing at this point. But do you think that that threat could you know, tip the Suns one way or the other that you know, Doncic may not come over for another season? I don't think so. From what I've read, I've been following closely the reports over in Belgrade, Serbia for the entire EuroLeague and He's mentioned the comment about him saying he might stay over, but I think that's just because he was focusing more on just the team at that time. Yep. And, and now that I'm looking at it more, he was talking to Bogdan Bogdanovich uh, on Friday after the game. He's spoken even further on Irika Koshkov saying he loved to be back in Phoenix with him. So it seems like at this point, I put it like a 99% chance he's getting the draft unless really something drastic happens. Because as we all know, though, it's really interesting from the Phoenix dynamic because his agent, Bill Duffy, also represents DeAndre Ayton. So they both have a chance to really pull wherever they want to go in the top of the draft, in my opinion. There's so many intriguing scenarios, especially uh, around Phoenix. As you mentioned, DeAndre Ayton and the Arizona connection, Robert Sarver and his Arizona connection, the fact that the Suns are clearly in Arizona. There's that side of it. So there's that, I guess, narrative portion pulling Suns fans or Suns media in one direction. And then there's the Kokoshkov narrative with Doncic as well. So you've got you know, reasons that aren't basketball-related necessarily going in both directions. Plus, there's the, you know, we need a big man, we need a, a point guard, which way the NBA is heading. There's going to be lots of different uh, discussions about this. There's going to be lots of ugly discussions about this right across uh, the internet. But uh, Evan, at this early stage, which way are you leaning, and which way do you think the Suns are leaning in terms of that number one overall pick? I, personally, I think they should go Luka Doncic because I think he's the one that's going to really set off Devin Booker. He could be a guy next year out just 27, 28 points per game on elite efficiency, almost like a not James Harden-like jump. But I think it's very possible with a guy Luka Doncic on board. But I think the Suns themselves are probably leaning towards DeAndre Ayton. I think Ryan McDonough might be leaning toward Luka Doncic, but I think it's going to be a very hard to win over a guy, Robert Sarver, as you mentioned, he went to University of Arizona. He went to a ton of DeAndre Aiden games this year. I knew he was over in Serbia this weekend to watch Luka Doncic with James Jones, but from all the things that even from that's been mentioned throughout the season about DeAndre Aiden, how he's quote-unquote a generational big man, transcendent talent, right in their backyard, I just find it really hard for them to say no to that guy at the top of the draft, but in my opinion, I think Luka Doncic has a very good case because like we've all been talking about throughout the Phoenix media, there has never been a European prospect like Luka Doncic. He's not Ricky Rubio. He's not Nicole Miritich. He's not Milos Teodosic. He's way better than all those guys, and he's younger than all those guys. So I think, like I mentioned earlier in the top of the podcast, I think the bias as far as European success really plays a factor in the, for the Suns fans, but I think the front office is at a point where they have to decide the direction of the team because they've set up very well if they want to go Doncic because you have three guys in Jackson, Doncic, and Booker, six, seven, and above in a backcourt which fits probably the modern-day NBA. But if they do go with DeAndre Ayton, that's a 7-foot-1 guy, 265-pound monster, who fits down low next to Devin Booker and creates one of the best young PNR duos in the NBA. So they can go wrong either way, but I think that the Suns are leaning toward Don- Leaning toward Aiden, why I think I'm leaning toward Doncic. Yeah, I'm leaning towards uh, Doncic myself. And you hear about you talk about the European bias, and people always throwing, "Oh, he's a, he's a European, he's going to be a bust." And you always hear that the stupidity of the Darko Milicic uh, comparison. But surprisingly, Evan, no one mentions uh, Yamas Antetokounmpo comes from Europe, and they never mention him as a as a bust or Kristaps Porzingis. But yeah, that's that's just me. But that that debate's going to be interesting. The Suns are going to do their due, due diligence on all these players, and realistically, either one of these guys can be an impactful player. Nobody knows for sure if anyone's can't miss or a definite bus at this point, but they'll do their uh, their due, due, try again, due diligence, and they're in the best position to get that player who they think is going to fit their team best. You can find out all that information uh, on Locked On Suns about the way the Suns are leaning and any sort of tidbits that come out about this draft process. Evan will be hosting that. 
five days a week. Um, now, Evan, thank you for coming on Locked On NBA again. And uh, I was going to say something corny about the sun rising in Phoenix, but uh, it's it's uh, sunny days ahead. Oh, yeah, hopefully the bright side of the sun's going to show here soon. <laughs> yep, exactly. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, no problem, Josh. Now we bring in the host of the Locked On Bucks podcast, Eric Name. The Bucks have hired a new head coach, Mike Budenholzer, formerly of the Atlanta Hawks. It was rumored uh, pretty consistently for the last couple of weeks. It's come to fruition now. Eric, are you happy that the Bucks have gone in the Budenholzer direction? Whew, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the Bucks were clearly after a safe-ish hire. You look at the the people that they interviewed. Um, in that first batch of interviews, you saw either former coaches that had some level of success, or it was assistant coaches with winning pedigrees. Whether that was uh, one of the many Spurs assistants that they interviewed, or uh, if that was Jay Laranega, they were looking to kind of bring in that winning pedigree that win it those winning ideals um so i mean to me it felt safe um i think it's going to be a fine hire um i also think that this bucks team was poorly coached for the last two years at least um and no matter where you went from there like if I'm a coach getting hired in this position, I'd be pretty happy because I think just not actively being hurt by their coaching gives them another three or four wins next year. And then if you're a good coach, uh, that gets you another two or three. And then all of a sudden you're at a 50 win team. And, and I think that's what you're looking at with Budenholzer. I, I think there's a number of questions that I have about some of his philosophies, but overall, I think if you're a Bucks fan, I think you have to be uh, relatively pleased with the process. Uh, it, they didn't rush it. They didn't uh, do anything crazy like they did last summer with the general manager search. And eventually they found a candidate that has already found proven success. And when he was assistant, he won four championships in 17 years with the Spurs. Like I, I just think there's a lot to be happy with. It's uh, it's almost it almost feels inarguable that it's an upgrade over Joe Pronti, and Bucks fans have to be looking for that to, as a, as a step forward for this franchise. Budenholzer had an interesting coaching career in Atlanta. Obviously, had that sixty win season. Playoff failures have uh, have haunted him, as have nearly all Eastern Conference teams when they have to face against LeBron James. He had his front office powers uh, revoked this season as Travis Schlink came in and tore the team down. He was dealing with a much different squad than he had through the first couple of seasons in his career. So it is hard to get a full gauge on what Budenholzer is. Is he that guy? that was able to take a team without recognizable stars on necessarily into a 60-win team. Is he the guy that failed in the playoffs or is he the guy that struggled this season? But one thing I think we can all agree on is he has had really strong success in developing wing players and getting guys who pro- previously we hadn't really thought of as starter caliber players, Damari, Carroll, Kent Bazemore. We saw the elevation of Torrey and Prince this season. And that really works in with the Bucks with guys like Tony Snell, with uh, Sterling Brown. With Chris Middleton there and other guys who are going to come in into that position where Budenholzer can, I guess, use those developmental strengths to help bring up what is probably the most important position in the NBA these days. Yeah, and and what I think is interesting there is that I think largely... Larger, like you said, that this is inarguably a good hire. I think it's inarguable that he does get that development out of wing players, and you do see that improvement. But I guess the question I'm always kind of curious about is they do get that development, and those guys do get better, but also their offenses don't perform 
all that well. Like the, the, they have had offenses that have struggled for the last three years. So it, it's tough for me, you know, to kind of square up in my mind, like the development that is undoubtedly there in those players versus, you know, the reps that they're getting to get that development. Because I think at times it leads to too, too many turnovers, too many missed shots and, they're getting better, but in getting better, you know, you have to go through some growing pains. And this Bucks team is one that, you know, it would be great if they get more production out of their wings. But if you're getting more production out of your wings and those wings are developing at the cost of five possessions a game for Giannis Dettacumbo, is that a good trade-off? I think it's a question that certainly has to be asked, and it's one that I've kind of been struggling with since the Boonholes are higher is, you know, there, the system is there. The Hawks University stuff is there. All of that is going to help out uh, some of the other guys on the Bucks. But is Boonholzer the guy to leverage Giannis Dedekumbo? And I just don't think we have a great answer to that because he really hasn't had a star of this magnitude uh, on any of his rosters to this point. So to me, that's the question that I think kind of sits squarely. Like, can you get improved wing play out of those players that you mentioned Snell, Brown, Middleton. Can you get that without sacrificing it in other places or, you know, dragging the offense down? Because this year they had bottom five schemes in the league offensively and they were still a number the number seven defense or excuse me, the number seven offense overall. So how does that all balance out? That to me is an interesting question. It is going to be interesting, of course, getting the most out of uh, Giannis is going to be the, the key thing. He's clearly the best player on this team. There's still uncertainty regarding the roster in terms of yeah, whether Jabari Parker returns, how Eric Bledsoe is going to be used moving forward. But I think one thing we did see change towards the end of the season with the Bucks was the uh, the emergence of Thon McCur, who was playing as that starting center against Boston. Yeah, new coach coming in. Obviously, it's not Joe Pronti anymore, but that's still an area of concern as to what, we, what happens with the big man uh, situation. Is there any indication from what we've seen from Budenholzer before that he'd be leaning one way or will he, he'll be going to more Giannis at center lineups? Do you have any sort of inkling there? Because that could be really something that helps unlock the Bucks' potential. Well, one thing that I think is really interesting is that Budenholzer's teams have struggled on the defensive glass. That is something that they've struggled with, and that's something that the Bucks have struggled with. So as we talk through candidates, I, I always kind of mention Steve Clifford as someone who uh, maybe didn't have the wins, and maybe that was because of the roster that he had, but he was... Uh, the exact opposite in many of the ways that the Bucks are weak. Like his teams were always great on the defensive glass. So to me, I'm really curious how the big men get used in Milwaukee because a guy like Thon, you saw him have that success in that series against the Celtics because they were switching everything. Like that was when Thon is at his best. It's when he's allowed to switch pretty much all the actions. Uh, you're able to use his quickness. You're able to use him against guards. And one thing that Budenholzer doesn't really do his switch his defenses whether it was the more conservative uh, approach that was used this year the more aggressive approach that was used near pass they didn't switch a lot and this is a bucks lineup a bucks roster that i mean i think in many ways is tailor made for switching so how again like i said Boonholzer is undoubtedly a good coach i think the bucks will win 50 games next year but all of those kind of underlying things about his philosophies and what we've seen from him thus far I think raises some questions for me about what he will do in Milwaukee and how he'll get the most out of this roster. 
Yeah, that is that is an important point because, as you said, this Bucks lineup is really, really long, and they do have success when they do go to those switching styles, which is something they hadn't done previously in the past. So it is, of course, going to be interesting to see exactly how Budenholzer does uh, run that. Is there any indication, and we had whispers before with Jason Kidd coming across, even though he had no official title in the front office that he had influence there. Budenholzer obviously had that in Atlanta that was stripped. Was there any indication that perhaps um, him coming to Milwaukee is something to do with him having some sort of personnel say to a degree or input there more than, say, another coach may have? There's no indication of that, but I guess one thing that I've been talking about as this interview process went on is organizational hierarchy. That one thing that if I was running the Bucks that I'd want to get set up here is, okay, let's hire someone's assistant because someone's assistant who hasn't been a head coach before will focus on coaching and understand like, hey, I need to prove that I can be an NBA head coach. So I'm not going to worry about personnel. That'll be my GM. And I think one thing that's interesting in hiring, Bo- hiring Budenholzer is that you have – John Horse there, who's among the youngest and lowest paid general managers in the league. And he was someone who kind of was the result of a messed up process in the general manager search last summer. And I I just wonder if I think if you bring on Boonholzer, you have to at least be very aware of the fact that He's going to make $7 million this year, and numbers for what the Bucks are paying him are not out. But because of that Atlanta buyout, he will make $7 million this year. John Horst will make $500,000 this year. That is a, that's 14 times as much. So, I mean, if, if you or I walk into a place, um, we get hired for a job, and we're told that this person, Person X, is our boss, and I make 14 times more than Person X, how much of, is he going to be my boss? Right, like yep. yeah, I just think there's there's general math there uh, in general power dynamics and uh, kind of how money works in any organization, and I think you do have to see that, you know, if you are hiring Boonholzer, you are very aware of those of that scenario and of the situation. So uh, to me, there does have to be some foresight into the thought of, okay, we are going to hire Mike Boonholzer, and he's going to make fourteen times as much as our GM, and to at least some extent you would think Mike Boonholzer would want to be a part of personnel. And, and maybe that's an attractive thing for the Bucks. Maybe they do think that will help clean up their front office and help give them a, you know, a wider net to use for their contacts around the league and all the decisions that they make. So maybe that's viewed as a good thing, but I think it's undeniable in that situation that those, par- those power dynamics are going to have to come into play. Well, obviously, there's lots of questions to answer with the Milwaukee Bucks and with Budenholzer for next season. Eric, thanks for coming on and talking about this hire. We'll see how everything progresses over the, the coming months, and everyone can check in with Locked On Bucks as everything unfolds throughout the summer. Thanks for coming on once again, Eric. Appreciate it, Josh. And that does it for another episode of the Locked On NBA podcast. If you do like what you're hearing, make sure you're leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us on Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now on Spotify. Make sure you're subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, make sure you're checking out the rest of the Locked On Podcast Network, whether that's the NBA, the NFL, or now Major League Baseball. And you can keep up to date with all of our podcasts and written content at LockedOnSports.com. A reminder, my name is Josh Lloyd, and you can find me on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.